0: To the Adoptee Diaries, the show where we dive deep into topics that matter to those who are part of the adoption constellation. I'm your host, Bethany Frazier. Thank you so much for being here. If you've been following the pod or reading any of my blog posts, then you know bits of my story. A quick recap to bring us to today's guest. When I did my ancestry search in 2020, I found out my biracial ethnicity. Something no one in my world with knowledge of this information would tell me prior to my discovering it on my own at 40 years old. If you fast forward two years later to the spring of 2022 when my father, the man who raised me, passed away, I was by his side. We had been so close. I would begin the painful process of grieving and hours after he passed away, I would come to know that he had known my ethnicity all along. A piece I was not shy about asking him about Yet never, over the decades, got a true answer from those that I trust the most. It was a sting that I am still trying to come to terms with to this day. During the process of healing and grieving, I started to research adult adoptee discoveries and I found an entire community of others with stories, some similar to mine, that contained intentional hiding and secrets from the very people that were supposed to protect and love us the most others shared different stories, but the common thread was we were adopted, fostered, feeling discarded, sometimes confused, often struggling with identity, and searching for a sense of belonging our whole lives. For us fortunate enough to land in loving homes, we were the lucky ones. I wasn't supposed to question or complain, but there were still feelings of internal disconnect and insecurity. It's hard to explain, and it's also hard to talk about when you don't want to offend those who raised you and love you and chose you and took you in. I made the choice to join the community of outspoken adoptees to share our stories so those who follow us hopefully don't experience as much confusion and loneliness as we did. So other people considering adoption have our collective stories of lived experiences and can make more informed decisions on how and who they parent if they elect to adopt. So the agencies, the social workers, educators, and policymakers do right by the children, putting them first in this story. I'll paraphrase what my previous guest, Adam Pertman, says. Adoption should be about finding families for children, not about finding children for families. Before all this, I am also an advocate of leaving no stone unturned to locate biological families for children who have made their way into the foster system, a system that is broken, a system that is systemically and historically racist, underfunded, under-resourced, and understaffed by people who understand, deeply care, and are only working for the best interest of the children. To the amazing advocates that have been working on correcting the systems, inequities, and inefficiencies, you are underpaid, you are underamplified, and you have my full support. You are the champions in other children's stories and the heroes tirelessly fighting for child welfare. Over the past year, I've had the privilege of meeting other adoptees in person and virtually, as well as connecting with various members of the broader adoption community. As I continue to make sense of and understand how my own adoption story has shaped who I am and how I present myself to the world, my hope is that I can inspire others to consider how their life and experiences have influenced them and their personal journeys. I have become part of this remarkable community of adoptees, not by choice, but we courageously share our lived experiences and together we're creating spaces where we can explore one another's stories, validate each other's experiences. We can connect deeply and ensure that nobody else feels alone in their journey and ultimately feel a sense of connection, which is really what it's all about. All of this is to say, I have been on a deeply personal journey of self-discovery for a solid 13 years now. Along the way, I have connected with individuals who have played a pivotal role in guiding me through my transformation. They have provided me with resources, tools, and perspectives that have helped me steer my path in ways I couldn't have imagined. They helped me reconsider how I perceive myself, my capabilities, and my future. So while this journey remains a daily endeavor and a continuous process I am on a mission to pay it forward I aspire to create a supportive community where we do all have access to the tools we share strategies and we bring insights that have been instrumental in our own growth so whether you're an adoptee a friend a family member or simply someone seeking a deeper understanding of your life experiences you are not alone on your journey That brings me to today's guest, Beth Tyson. Beth is a global expert in childhood trauma. She is an organizational trainer, award-winning author, and a public speaker. Beth specializes in educating organizations and audiences worldwide about the impact of trauma and how to support affected children and families, as well as just really making everybody more trauma-informed from individuals to corporate spaces. This would improve culture, a sense of belonging, psychological safety, and overall mental health and wellness. I landed on Beth Tyson's work and in her work, I found a library of incredible resources that supported me in my journey and my search. What I became was more trauma-informed. I wouldn't have necessarily categorized moments of my life as traumatizing prior to digging into its definition, but to have the understanding and awareness and the definition Adoption by itself is a traumatizing or can be a traumatizing event. With all the information that Beth and others in her field provide, families and caregivers, everybody can be more informed. We can be less scared. We can be less ashamed. We can have validation in what we've experienced, and we can land on healing. I am honored to have Beth on the Adoptee Diaries as we continue to introduce listeners in the Adoption Constellation to the resources that I personally have experienced and I fully recommend for healing and understanding, self-discovery,
1: and more. Beth, thank you for being here. Yay. All right. Well, I'm so happy to obviously have you on here as like a real live guest because I've been talking to you now for months. Um, I guess maybe some background could be helpful. And the short story of how we met is I probably internet stopped you because I heard about you. <laughs> and we had some mutual, I think, people in common that your work was starting to pop up and your name kept popping up in my world. So I think the first time I reached out to you was when I was doing a blog when I was just letting you know that I was going to quote some of your work. Yes. And now I know you and you're so nice. So of course you wrote me back. But, but back then at the time when you actually wrote me back, I was like, what? <laughs> like, she <can you> reply <laughs> That's so crazy to me. I know, I know, I know. It was like, you know, because I entered into this world and a year plus ago now and people some people respond, some people don't. I sort of on a whim will reach out to people if I feel like there's something they said that I want them to know resonated with me. Or and as I started to sort of write more about it and dig in a little bit more. And then of course when I started the podcast, then the outreach became became, you know, can you be on my podcast or can we get a quote for a blog or something like that? So I love that this platform has given me an opportunity to connect with people I think that might not otherwise respond, but you were one of my responders before I had either. So now I, I know it's
2: because you're nice. No, I was no, I was so struck by your writing. Oh, I mean, wow. I mean, I do a lot of reading and I do a lot of writing myself. And when I read the article that you wrote, I it just it just oh. really, really struck me to my core. And I was like, I gotta write her back right now. <laughs> I totally so,
1: appreciate it. Aaron I totally incredible. appreciate it. Yeah. Even as a grown ass woman, I always I'm like, I'm always I shock myself at my need for validation mm, or permission too. or things like that. Right. Okay. And I felt like your content that you were putting out there, um, you know, and you're active on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and then of course, your newsletter um, and your website and all these places. I was finding so much information that, as a grown woman, that was starting to explore and go go on this journey of self discovery. I was totally like, "Oh my gosh, what is she? Is she giving me permission to feel this way? She's validating the way I feel. She's making me realize that even as a mom, I probably was showing up short with my kids in some ways, and I was coming by it honestly because you know, there's been times where I felt like I've been totally underparenting my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these things you kept putting out there and I'm like, is she in my house? Is she <laughs> actually talking to me? You know, so are we I feel, <laughs> are, you, are you totally watching me right now? So, um, and I credit you now for being the first person that I think I read the word trauma uh, um, in context to like my situation and applied, look back at my, adoption and my DNA search and my finding out I was biracial because of the DNA search because nobody bothered to, you know, give me that information prior. People that love me didn't tell me that. So we'll get in like to the meat of it. Um, But I think, yeah, I looked at that for the first time because of what you were saying through a lens of childhood trauma. And I realized some of the biggest forks in my life that I thought were just, you know, life's forks, may have, may not be the, like, how do I want to say this? Some of the things that I have been sort of blaming or calling the biggest impactful moments of my life, maybe, maybe weren't the first impactful moments of my life, right? Because there are times that have impacted me and shaped me and who I am internally before I even was aware of it, number one. Mm -hmm. And then also it could have triggered something that's already inside of me when these big moments come. Yes. Yes. And how was I held there and who helped me through those things. So today, um, for our next hour together, um, I would love to maybe dive into some of those things. And then you can layer in your knowledge and expertise. So um, I read it in the intro before the podcast, but just to sort of recap, I want everybody to know that Beth is a global expert in childhood trauma. We train organizations on how to be trauma-informed when working with children and communities that obviously experience trauma. You are an award-winning author and a public speaker. Um, You specialize now in, like I said, training organizations and audiences worldwide about the impact of trauma and how to support, how those groups support children and families that are impacted by trauma. So you're kind of the teacher's trainer or the you know, nurses, trainer, the social works, you're a trainer of people that need to know this stuff. So I totally love your work and everything that you are putting out there. Um, thank just you. Lastly, yeah. And I just want to say one thing that I heard you say the other night. Um, and it was that you are bringing hope to communities and to people and to families. And I don't know that I've ever heard you say that before in that context, but are, so thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. And um, I didn't know I would end up here. But I am really finding that this is my, my space and the place that has the most purpose and meaning for me. And part of that is not only sharing about the tragedy that trauma causes, but the hope that we can find in the healing process. And that healing process can last our entire lives. There doesn't have to be an end point. But I think a lot of times we can When we learn about trauma we just hear about all the negative parts of it and we don't have any way we're not leaving people with the skills and the strategies to really make positive change moving forward and so i try to bring those positive skills and strategies because there's lots of them and lots of things that we can do to help children heal um, and bring those in a way that people can really understand and apply to their everyday lives and i think that's where the hope is right because if we tweak a couple of things, if we, you know, we try a couple of different things with, with kiddos, they're so, um, their brains are so malleable at young ages that we're able to make a much bigger impact in childhood than we are later on in life. So that's why I love what I do because there is so much hope. And I guess,
1: so since I know you and I know your story, I I just want to make sure I'm leaving room for people that might not be familiar with you and your work. Can you just share? Um, I know now you're the founder of Beth Tyson Trauma Consulting, but can you share how you landed in this space and this work and sort of how it evolved over the years?
2: Yeah, so I was a trauma therapist within foster kinship and adoptive families um, within the child welfare system primarily, but not exclusively. And working with those families was so eye opening. It really made me see, I was able to sort of look behind the veil of of our world and see what was really causing a lot of social issues that we're dealing with right now and and that was this untreated trauma and that that is kind of where a lot of our our social problems begin Um, if you are not raised in a home that is loving and caring and safe a whole Trajectory of things begin to happen, right? Your mental health is suffering, and because your mental health is suffering, you know the way you behave suffers, and then you get punished for that behavior as a child, and then you know, and then, then you lose self worth and self value as you go through that process, and then you know, it's just like a trauma is like that pipeline to um, substance abuse and suicide and violence and crime and incarceration, and so my thought was if I can, if I can impact and reduce or help heal trauma, then that's where I can have the biggest impact in my life, make the biggest impact in the world, and that's that's what I'm all about. At my core, I just really want to help um, make an impact for positive change in our world. And so, after doing that work as a therapist, I became a mom and left my job as a therapist for some pregnancy complications. And, um, I ended up staying home with my daughter much longer than I expected. I was like, oh, I'll stay home for a year, you know, kind of thing. And <laughs> as time went on, that turned into three and then four years. And then the pandemic happened and I was like, Oh, okay. So now I'm staying home for five years. <laughs> but during that time I was getting antsy. I was like, I really wanted to get back to my work, but I didn't know in what capacity I'd be able to do that now that I was a mom, because being a mother activated a lot of my childhood trauma and I was really struggling as a mom, especially to an infant and a toddler. And, uh, and I didn't feel that I could take on the role as a trauma therapist and be very effective when I was already, you know, holding so much emotion at home. And, um, and I just knew it wouldn't be healthy for me. So luckily I was like healthy enough to knew, to know that that wouldn't be help, helpful to me or to anybody really, right. We'd all be losing if I stretched myself in that way. So, um, I thought, what else can I do? And I was like, well, I had this idea of publishing this children's book for the population that I worked f- with when I was a therapist. And I published that book in 2019, right before the pandemic, which it's called A Grand Family for Sullivan. And it's a book for grandchildren being raised by their grandparents for unfortunate circumstances and reasons. And um, and when I did that, I started promoting it on social media and being asked to to speak about the book and to come on podcasts and things like that. And I was like, speaking about this book and the trauma and bringing all my education and my experience into these conversations. And I loved it. I was like, wow, this feels really right to me. Like I'm educating a wider audience, which is what I wanted to do with making impact. And I'm also loving it. Like I enjoy this, this process. I enjoy talking to new people and, and being interviewed or speaking in front of groups, all of which I had never never done before. <laughs> never, never spoke in front of a large group of people before, except maybe like a college class or something. Um, so I've kind of have been just teaching myself along the way. And um, over the last several years, the last three or four years, developed um, webinars and workshops and trainings for different nonprofits, nonprofits all across the country, and even some international clients. And, um, and now I'm just continuing to continuing to grow. And uh, and the, the whole idea is just to get the information into the hands of people that need it. So as a therapist, you had to have access to me in order to get the tools and resources and information and education that I had. And to me, that just wasn't fair. A, a lot of people can't get access to this information. And B, I had such a strong desire to share it. You know, I'm a sharer, so I just needed to get it out there. Um, so yeah, so now I provide that education to adults who are working with children, um, organizations that want to be trauma responsive, not just trauma aware, but know what to do when they come across the childhood trauma, um, either within their staff or their or the children they serve. And it's been the right balance for me um, where I don't feel so emotionally drained that I can't be good and strong for my family.
1: So. Yeah, I so, thank you, because I love the journey. It just is totally like the evolution of the work that you did. Just It just kept rolling along and like turning <laughs> into its own thing. And yes. here you are now, right? Like producing all this amazing content and necessary content. And I love that you made the shift from being a therapist, which I have no idea what the stats are, but like, who can, everybody cannot, that needs, cannot afford or find a therapist. Um so that is you know definitely a problem. So you said a few things in there that I just want to touch on. So, the first thing that you said where I was like, "Oh, yeah, 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 this is a good one." So you were when you you made a comment about being a parent and yeah. realizing like you had some things that you needed to work on to parent,
2: mm-hmm. you were
1: already a parent, right? <laughs> um, by the time you realized that, so for for me, I so that what sticks out to me, obviously is that I, is self-awareness is clearly like a first step of anything um, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it's always like that first step is self-awareness and then the desire to want to be better or do better or know better, experience better. So I, is that the first step in trauma, like informed self-care as well is obviously knowing and then seeking it out?
2: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, if like for myself, I didn't even, I had no idea that becoming a mom was going to activate Trauma responses in me. I had no idea. And um and even as I, I was at that point, you know? And so like I really, I really didn't know. And so I lived it. And I was um there goes my Hi, dog. Puppy.
1: Yeah. We <laughs> yeah. So
2: <laughs> show, show disclaimer. Beth
1: between Beth's house and my house, there's like four animals. So they'll all be barking at some <laughs> point, I'm sure, over the next hour. Or a dog. Um, you know, you taught me you it was reading something that you said about parent parenting and stimulate old or or make trauma. I'm going to get it wrong. So you correct me. Parenting stimulates or triggers trauma.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Parenting can bring back, you know, a lot of the emotions that we had as children. So when we reach, when our children reach the age that we were, when we experienced a trauma, a lot of our adult emotions and, you know, um, history of trauma can then start to uh, relive itself in our bodies and in our minds. And I had that experience when my daughter was a baby and she was um, very difficult to soothe and console and had a lot of what people might have called colic, which I think was probably from birth trauma, from the birth process. Um, but nobody recognized that or nobody acknowledged that or said to me, maybe this is what it is. They were like, oh, it's acid reflux. Oh, it's this or that. And, you know, um, but I think, I think she was Coping with some birth trauma as well as I was from the birth process. And there was a lot of anxiety and um, panic related to her crying. Um, her being so helpless and me not being able to help her or soothe her, no matter what I tried, no matter what I did. That feeling of complete helplessness and yet having all the responsibility on this, you know, on you for this human being's life um, was overwhelming and I was really struggling with my mental health in those first few months and um, I got help thankfully you know I I started going to therapy and I had my family to support me and to say hey you need to get some help like we're noticing some things and I was grateful for that because sometimes you can't see it when you're when you're in it you know you're like so in it that you you can't even see how you've sort of you know gotten off track to put it nicely. (laughs) And and I'm curious when you're talking
1: about that, I feel like there's so much there. So I always have to remind myself, like Bethany, you're trying to help adoptees heal and get connected to resources and things like that. And it's important to also say like, if somebody's listening to this or this falls in somebody's hands, who's clearly not adopted or in the adoption constellation somewhere, it doesn't matter. Like, we're all experiencing so many different forms and types of trauma all the time, like I challenge anybody to think of one person that has not gone through something, even if you think they're the most, you know, live this most beautiful life. Right. So when you were just speaking, um, something that you talk about is, you know, losing your mother at a young age, totally tragic, like um, unexpectedly. And what that meant to you was you becoming a mother, something to, you know, come up like, did that come up about your your own mother and what that meant?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, loss.
1: I mean, loss, yeah. Loss. Like, yeah, you're it's, not you're not an adoptee. However, you experience the separation from a parent due to, and I know you talk a lot about a separation from a parent can look like a lot of things. It can look like adoption or foster or incarceration or death or or or, and they're all um, related. They're all, they're all, it's trauma is trauma. Do right. you think it matters? Do you think it matters, um, like the level of trauma? Like to lose a parent to incarceration, to adoption, to, is there, is there something there?
2: I think, speak well, I think that, well, I know that trauma is subjective, right? So awareness,
1: being a parent, that, that piece of it, I mean, there's so many pieces of it that speak to me, I guess, besides telling, giving the disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast that we have dogs. I also wanted to give the disclaimer that for some reason, whenever you like hit a point that really resonates with me personally, like I will totally start crying. So, <laughs> you know, I could read something you said, I could listen to you live, speak it. And so, my other disclaimer is sometimes I cry when Beth speaks because it hits this like nerve. I don't know, for me, it's a little bit of like a aha, I'm not crazy, or oh. I did struggle being a parent when my kids were young because I was struggling being a parent when my kids were young, not cause I'm a crappy parent, mm-hmm. you know? So there's just all these things that you tend to say. Um, and one of them is, is the parenting piece. Yeah. So watching your kids be the age. So just to sort of recap that bit was when you are parenting and your kids, it's possible that when your children hit an age, that was the age where you experienced whatever your experience, tough experience was, it could click something in you that you're like, oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It kind of brings up a lot of the old stuff. And for a number of reasons, like for, for an adoptee like yourself who was adopted at birth or just close to it anyway. Right. It's pretty yeah, close yeah. to it. Um, yeah. Eight, 10 weeks. So I was 10 weeks old. So I spent a few weeks in foster care
1: and was adopted at about 10 weeks.
2: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, so, you know, when your sons were ten weeks old, when your sons were born, maybe that time period was really tough for you, not only because you were a new mom, but because of the trauma that you experienced at birth of being separated from yeah your biological parents.
1: And one of the pieces, so so I often on this podcast talk about my story, just so other people that are listening. Don't feel alone if they have anything similar, any pieces that are similar, because that's what helped me when I heard other people that speak on themselves. So, um, this month, I made the decision since September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. I wanted to sort of shift the podcast to make sure that I'm um, hosting guests like yourself that are helping people heal and that could be helpful to adoptees, specifically healing and helpful to parents or social workers that are listening um understand concepts and tools that can also help you know their communities that they're serving and things like that so so I talk about so I thought it might be helpful like for me to tell you a couple um to talk through a few bits of my story where then you can apply your you know your therapist lens mm-hmm. and maybe we can identify just some tools or things I could have done in real time or things that my parents maybe could have done you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. So, so people that are listening can understand like what to do. So one of those pieces, um, gosh, I don't even know where to start. Cause there's so many bits. I, so there's a couple, I guess I'll stay on the topic of being a parent. So as an adoptee who was parenting, I did not realize until I met you that <laughs> the way I was parenting my kids so so the 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 short story, the long story short is, and you know this, I now know with 100% certainty I am both African and Eastern European descent. I did not grow up knowing that though, um, even though I felt like I clearly was not Caucasian. So my children, I have two boys um, who I always, you know, I raise them and I, I say my children are mixed. My children identify, one will say he's mixed, one would say he's Black. When my oldest, who says he's black, um, was in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and he would come to me and tell me some of the things that he's experiencing in school, I totally booed him off. No, no, you're not experiencing that. So I sort of dismissed his experience as a black child in a predominantly white school. And I think your work and digging into this work, uh, digging into what you're saying, helped me realize I was doing to my child in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, exactly what my parents did to me.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: So, you know, what you saying that is real. Um, and you know, so, so that's kind of number one. I just want to give a real life example of
2: yeah. that. And I think, And I, yeah, we all do that. Right. I mean, we don't know a lot of times we don't realize we're doing it, Um, but I've certainly found myself in those shoes before too. So I want people to know it's, it's not only, um, you're not alone in that, that it's a, it's almost like a default, right? It's like, you just keep, when you get stressed, you go to like the first thing you remember and the first thing you remember what your parents did. And, and if you're not in touch with how that was traumatizing to you and you haven't had an opportunity for it to be validated or talked about with you or apologized for any of those things then you know you're just going to probably just repeat the pattern and so that's what I'm really passionate about is like breaking that cycle of that trauma you know where can we break those cycles and interrupt that pattern so that our children don't then carry it on to their children and so forth
1: totally totally accurate everything that you just said is totally right and i and and again that was you know, he's 21 now. This is when he was 13. So it was a while back and it took me a long time as a parent to understand. I think I'm so thankful that I did finally understand. Um, but my reactions always when it came around race were really, really sticky. And I think that's, again, I grew up in a white family. I had a very white existence. I was told I was white. (laughs) I mean, everything was very, um, very predominantly white in my world, and as I was raising these babies, uh, so it's interesting to me now when I look at the transracial adoptions and the conversations surrounding them. I kind of sit in this strange place because I was not—we were not on paper told that we were in a transracial adoption experience. My parents mm-hmm. were not informed in the mid '70s. So, so to be clear for anybody that's listening that doesn't know my story, I found out after my father passed away last year that he very much so did know I was a biracial baby. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know if, why he held that truth. So I've had to make up some stories in my head and eventually let that go. Um, But I didn't have the conversations with my parents that were safe when I came home. And I said, somebody called my boyfriend an N-word lover, right? My white boyfriend in high school, somebody called him that. And I'm like, why? Hey, mom, somebody said this today to my high school boyfriend, my white boyfriend. Why? and she she says i don't know why would they see that and it was just totally ignored totally ignored so the lesson there is obviously the truth i think the point is for you know to nail that drive that point home it's please be honest with us especially now that ancestry dna and the internet and things like that are out there you kind of can't hide anymore
2: right absolutely not i mean when i was working with adoptive families and foster families who were um, on track, you know, who were planning to adopt, I would still hear that, that same thought pattern about like, well, we're not going to tell them because I would ask, I would be like, well, do they know, you know, have you talked with them about this at all? Um, when I would meet with the caregivers and they would say, well, no, we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna, um, not tell them. I don't think they need to know till they're older. That was what I would get. They're not going to understand at this age. And, um, Or then I would have parents who would say, or caregivers who would say, well, I don't know when to tell them, when's the right time to tell them. And I get that. All of these things are stemming from good intentions, I think, but having the opposite impact. Um, And it's just a lack of that awareness of how that untruth and how that lack of truth can really impact a person and how that impacts their sense of trust And so when working with children in foster kinship and adoptive families, the goal is building trust again, right? Because the trust is what's been broken by trauma. That's, that's the initial breach of, um, you know, of their foundation of feeling as though the world's not safe and I'm not safe because what I thought was supposed to be here for me is suddenly not here for me anymore and that instinctual connection to that birth family biological family um is there regardless of the age of the child um we know that attachment begins to form in the womb and that trauma can be passed down intergenerationally um and so no matter the age the child is always going to long for and need to know about their biological family for their well-being like just for their for their well-being and so when caregivers would ask me or say like, oh, I don't know when to tell them. I would say the best time to tell a child or the best, what was it? It's been a while since I've said it, but, um, it's like the, the best adoption story is the one they can't really remember because they've just always known they were adopted. Um, and. Oh, that's interesting. So that they, is my story. Yeah. I always knew as adopted,
1: people would say, when did you find out? I never knew that, that, And that matters. That means that my parents never held that piece for me. Yeah. My parents held the racial piece for me potentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Or well, they did, I guess now I know, Um, which ultimately was a big piece for me. And as I got, it wasn't until I got older that I think I put it all, well that I did put it all together and realized how um, that, how that I still am uncovering ways that I think that that, impacts me and you know unfortunately it's too late to figure it out but I never necessarily named what I was feeling as I was starting to become a little bit more mature and understand and and when I lost my father and you know did the DNA search and all the things I don't think I ever would have called it trauma like I wouldn't have said that that would be a traumatizing event in my life um and I hear that word so much now I don't know if it's because I'm looking for it Actually, yesterday, I was at a luncheon with these high-powered, like, amazing women. And it was this totally unrelated, you know, I it was struck me that the conversation at the luncheon with the group of people that I was sitting with, it wound up going towards the word trauma and mental health and things like that. And I was sitting there going, gosh, this is, this really is permeating, like, class and industry and sector and race and, you know, all the things. It really is. Do
2: you think, do you think it was brought on heightened after the pandemic because we started to talk about yeah. mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been, I've been in this work since 2013, so 10 years and nobody was talking about it pre-pandemic other than people in my circle, in my field, in my area of expertise. It really wasn't part of the general conversation on media or anywhere. Um, and I know that because I, you know, whenever I told anyone what I did or like what I was doing or some of the things I I was just blank stares like, what, what are you What are you talking about? (laughs) So I always say the one positive thing that I can find from the pandemic is that it heightened the conversation around mental health and trauma and, um, and, in our understanding of what can be traumatic, that it's not just these one time severe, severe incidents like abuse or violence or an accident, but that it can be relational trauma. And I think that's what you've experienced um, as you describe um, finding out about the truth of your identity. I I mean, knowing who you are and where you come from is foundational to your mental health and your, um, your sense of self and your, you know, all of those identity formations and all of those things. And so to have found out, so you have like an initial trauma of being separated and, um, from your biological family at birth or close to it. And then, like I said, that disrupts your sense of trust and safety in the world. And then come to find out all these years later, um, that's something that people were not trustworthy right? Um, yeah. And I hate to use that word, but weren't honest, you know, um, they were trustworthy in other ways, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in this big way that um, you've had already had your trust damaged, and now this is another. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was looking for the Kleenex, and I think my child took it, but this is the part that gets me, which is why I know this is also the part that my I have my big napkin now just in case, but <laughs> this is the part I'm I'm trying to pay attention now um, to the parts that make me emotional because to me, those are the parts that I still, you know, this will make me cry. Those are the parts that I still need to heal. Yeah. So like I know I of my parents up in my office. And like I I know that they love me so the most. I used to joke around that t- to my brother who is also adopted. I'm like, oh, they definitely love me the most. I just always say that. But I really am like, God, my parents like loved me so much. And I say that in past tense only because my father passed. My mom is still alive and has had dementia for now over 10 years. So she doesn't know who I am anymore. So she's in essence gone. A whole nother Let me just say now, that's another thing. When I started to tell you my story, when we first met, you explained to me ambiguous loss. So, can you maybe just roll in with the tears here? Can you and and while I compose myself? Can you talk about ambiguous loss for a moment?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, first, you never have to apologize for your emotions, especially with me. <laughs> um, you know, that's it's it's actually a good thing that you can be in touch with it and you haven't numbed yourself to it. Um, means there's place, you know, room for healing that pain and that pain is valid. Um, and just to, to speak to what you were saying about, you know, your parents loved you so much and I don't doubt that for a second. Um, and I know you don't either, or you might, but because of the the trust that was broken, there might be a question in there, but we can, as humans sometimes love thinks has us thinking we're doing the right thing, you know, when, when we're not, so they may have believed that they were protecting you. In some way. Um, and that was their way of loving you and just not knowing any better in some ways. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Add that in. But the ambiguous loss piece is something I really like to talk about as well because it's not often recognized and it's something that's so impactful and profound in the lives of adoptees and children in foster care, kinship families. Um, ambiguous loss, there's two types. There's the type where the person or thing or or place is still present, still alive, still exists, but you no longer have access to it for some reason. Um, So that could be like a mother or a father who's addicted to substances and is unable to be mentally and emotionally present for the child. That would be someone who's still here, still alive in the world, but unreachable emotionally and is unable to provide the love and care that a child needs and deserves. So that's the first type of ambiguous loss. And then the other type of ambiguous loss is, and that would be the one that also applies to dementia, where your mom is still physically alive, but emotionally and mentally um, gone, right? Um, And so you're in this limbo, this grief limbo, it's called, of you don't know what to do with yourself. I mean, it's such a hard, uncertain place where um you just don't you're frozen in knowing which direction to go next and there's no closure there's no rituals around it there's no there's nobody who identifies it for you to say like it's okay to be feeling these ways and it's another type of of potential trauma um for folks that we just ignore and we just are like we're not talking about this Um, nothing to see here everybody let's let's yeah
1: so if we stay on that one for a moment yeah. um and i i don't necessarily talk about this that much anymore but it is coming up more often um and that is uh incarceration
2: mm,
1: yes so so uh, again people i always assume everybody knows my story for anybody listening that does not when my child when my children were almost 3 and almost 8 um their father was incarcerated um so in 20 Eleven, he set off for it to serve an eight year sentence, and um, in that space, there's kind of two levels. I mean, this could be like a whole nother separate conversation. I sometimes don't bring it up because it's complicated, and I think it's important that I don't ignore it if I'm being honest and trying to help others find resources and ways to heal and not feel alone and things like that. So, on the topic of incarceration, for me, as knowing everything that we know about my background and my history and my ties and the truths and all the things for me to have a husband, I felt abandoned by his decisions to do what he did and then exit our household. So Mm -hmm. that's, there's that level when you talk about me as a person, me as an adopting all the the pieces. But I think maybe for purposes of this conversation and people that could be listening knowing the audience, when I think about my children, who had an incarcerated parent that became something that I started to look into when we became one of the families impacted by incarceration. Now, fortunately, my children had me, I should say, me in air quotes, because I was also a mess and falling apart and trying to hold it together. So, by no means was I like that. That is a lot of my beating myself up is the parent that I wasn't to them during that time trying to hold myself together in a messy way. And I've so there's pieces of that that I still work through and heal from and things like that. But when I think about my children, I remember hearing other parents and people in my situation telling their children, and even people that I know with with good intentions would say, hey, just tell your kids that dad's on a long business trip. You know, mm-hmm. I was encouraged to not tell the truth from non-professionals, people that just really were like, let's think of other ways that we can protect your kids. Mm-hmm. And thank God, um, very good friends of mine said, you need actually, they said he needs a therapist and he wasn't open to that at the time. So I took the therapist that they were gifting him. And immediately she said to me, you must tell your children the truth. Um, so from your perspective and the families that you've worked with, incarceration has been a piece of it. Um, what's the, what's the tip there, uh, um, in terms of trauma, like maybe we can go there for a couple minutes.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, first I agree. I'm so glad that you had that therapist who said, tell the truth, because again, there's that fear as adults, we want to protect our children from some of these harsh truths. And I do that myself too. Um, but we don't help our children by keeping secrets because they're so intelligent and perceptive and observative that are able to observe us so clearly, um, that they know something's wrong and they know that they're not getting the truth. Um, And then when they find out later on, you're just adding more trauma to trauma. So, um, you know, there's already the trauma of the family member being incarcerated. Right. So let's keep it at one trauma. Let's not make it two by lying about it and then them finding out about it later on and then having their trust broken again, you know, so that's what a way we can prevent trauma is by being honest and being truthful. Now, the younger the child, the less details, I will say that you want to give, you want to make sure that you're speaking these truths with age appropriate language so that you're not sharing too much, sharing just enough for them to, to know the truth. But I say like, you can't, how can you, how can you do the big things of being a kid like learning and socializing and learning how to go to school and doing your homework or passing a math test when you don't even know the truth of your life. You know, how do you how do you feel calm in your body, um, calm enough to do all those things when when you have all these big questions and uncertainties and and, uh, and yeah, and just questions. So I really have a lot of my work is helping build trust by being honest and forthright with children in a way that's age appropriate. And so the older a child gets, the more details they can have. And one of my rules of thumb, and it doesn't always apply, but like anything, you have to discern if it's right or not for you. But if the child is old enough to ask the question, then they're old enough to hear the answer.
1: I love that.
2: Yeah. That is good. You
1: know, this also is reminding me of the post, which it might have been from today. And I loved it. You said if it, it was from God a text message from God that basically said, if I hear one more person, just say, telling the child to breathe, like, and everything will be okay. And then we can carry on, you know, he's going to come down here and strike us all. So I love it. it I, and I just, it's awesome. Uh. I love it. Cause it's true. I think that when I see it in my kids' school, like in this, not now, cause they're older, but you know, when the meditation and yoga and wellness was incorporated into the elementary school systems and you see that people are like, breathe in, breathe out, go back to math class. Like, I think it was great that they tried to incorporate it. Um, and they maybe didn't have the time or the capabilities to go as deep as they need to, but what should we be doing if it's not, Hey, just take a breath and then move on. So Mm -hmm. what, what else should we be saying besides, Hey kid, time out, take a breath and then now go back to your pain.
2: Right. Exactly. So, um, Um, one of, you know, the first step is that honesty, right? They can't start the healing process unless they know the truth again with guidance, with education, with, you know, don't go it alone. It don't just start blurting out a bunch of traumatic things, children, but you know, you need to have some guidance, talk it through with somebody, whether it's a mental health professional or someone you love and respect and, um, and get some language, even write it down first, you know, what you might say. And again, just keeping it really simple. Kids can handle a lot more than we realize, Um, And things that we think will really upset children, sometimes they're like, oh yeah, I already knew that. (laughs) Or like, oh, okay. And now I'm back to like jumping on my trampoline or whatever it is, you know, and it's like, um, you know, we make a big deal sometimes out of death and loss. And if we're just really matter of fact with children about it um, they'll, they'll go off our cues. If we're calm about it, they'll be more calm about it. If we're all nervous and jerky about it and we are like, don't want to talk about this taboo thing that happened, then, then they're going to pick up on that and model that or mirror that back to us. So, um, the more comfortable we can get with this, with this information and the more we've kind of processed through it on our own, whether through journaling or through therapy, Um, the better able we'll be able to help our children. So the first step is the truth and the honest, the honesty. Um, And then from there, I mean, there's so, so many things that we can do. But some of my go to things are really about um, are really about finding safety within our bodies and finding the ability to trust ourselves so that we can trust other people. Um, And ways that we can do that are beyond, you know, deep breathing, which, you know, I get it for some people, it may be really helpful. But most kids are like, Oh, get out of here with that. I can't. (laughs) My kid was like, I am totally guilty of telling my kids, you know,
1: let's breathe. And now off to school you go.
2: Yeah. So we're close. We're cl- We're getting better. Yeah, right. We're doing better yeah, that we're yeah. at least thinking to take a pause, which listen, that can be incredibly powerful too. I'm not here to say it has no place. I'm just saying it can't be the only place we go. Um, we need to have more tools in our tool belt than that. And really it's about finding felt safety through relationships. So if the trauma happened in relationships, then we need our relationships to heal the trauma. And so that connection. That feeling safe with somebody, feeling that somebody respects you, respects your space, respects your body, respects your thoughts, um, you know, creating an, a deeper connection with your child through understanding them, through meeting their needs, um, listening when they need to share with you. Um, and so, you know, building trust is also about sharing a bit about your struggles and your own life. And this is what I talked about last week in Albany for the Kinship Month celebration was the process of rupture and repair and how in parenting, um, we usually forget about the repair step. We get so caught up in the ruptures and the mistakes that we've made that we don't then follow back around and bring it back up again to repair the fight or repair the mistake that we made. And so I'm a big advocate in my own life too, um, because I mess up. I mess as a I mess up as a parent all the time. And but what I make a point to do is go back and repair that relationship because um not only are we, you know, we're not gonna erase what happened, right? But we're gonna show our child that we care enough to say, I'm sorry. You know, I messed up. And um, yeah. I don't want to do that again. I wasn't my best self this morning when you left for school or um, you know that having some humility and the self-awareness to admit to your children that you've messed up and then um, and then, you know, offering to them, that you will work on changing these things. We can't just stop at apologizing all the time. We need to actually take the action to try and work on some of these things. Um, but at least admitting that you've that you've messed up or made a mistake can be incredibly healing. Not only that, it helps the child it helps reduce the shame the child is feeling because children always blame themselves. They have a very self centric worldview, and they blame themselves when things go wrong way more than we realize. Even if they act tough. <laughs> Yeah, the shame
1: piece was a huge thing, and I saw that with my kids very much so. Yeah, right. And one, yeah, and and they both handled the situation. They were five years apart. They handled the situation very differently. One was telling everybody about it. The younger one, the older one, didn't want the little guy to tell everybody in the school about it. You know, it's just, but the sh- the word shame was the shame and the embarrassment that is felt by these children who have an incarcerated parent um, is real, and to ignore it doesn't make their pain go away. Several different things that you just kind of, that came to mind as you were speaking. Um, One of the pieces that I'll share, I can't remember where I heard this. I just, I just heard it recently. I'm not sure if it was you or not, but when a child comes home, for example, had a bad day or if they are feeling away or they're acting out or whatever the case may be, um, saying, what did you do Mm. is not, is not helpful, as helpful as, you know, what happened. Tell me what happened to you today. If you get a call from the principal and somebody so-and-so is acting out. Um, Another, I think, tip that helped us through our time period when my children were elementary age and their dad was incarcerated, I would advocate for my kids and go in there and say, hey, teachers. Every year I'd go in and say, my child's father's incarcerated. If there is an issue in this classroom, please use them to the counselor who knows our situation and let's keep in touch. Because something super misunderstood that absolutely, if like I didn't say anything important today, my piece that I hope sticks is teachers obviously have this opportunity when they're with our children more than sometimes we are throughout the week Mm -hmm. to feel or hurt our kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember specifically having a teacher that just couldn't deal with my child and wanted him out of her classroom. And I was so angry because I'm like, do you not understand that we have a thing going on? It was tough for me to understand the line between what is him? What's behavior of his that's like, we need to correct this quick and nip it in the bud because you're kind of coming into yourself and you're getting into exploring where's the line here versus what part of this is you acting out of pain and anger and you know, it was was very difficult for me. I wish I had you around at the time that could help us all kind of work through that. I wish she was a more informed teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. So just kind of dropping that here for any parents that are experiencing, right, acting out um, and blaming, dismissing. I think that's like kind of the key that we keep uncovering here is you got to give these kids more than... Dismissing their comments. Um,
2: yeah.
1: So that was a big thing that was kind of coming up yeah. that whole, like, what happened to you today? Tell me what happened today versus what did you do?
2: Right. You know, it's right. A huge one difference assumes, in response. Yeah, yeah, one assumes that you intentionally did something. Um, and that's, I think, a big disconnect is that adults tend to think that children's quote-unquote bad behavior or mis misbehavior is intentional and is conscious when children in your classroom or in your home could be unconsciously activated. So let's just say, I mean, I, I tell, I use all kinds of examples, but um, one I've been using lately is like, if you have a child who was removed at Christmas time, let's say the child celebrates Christmas and they, but they were removed from their biological family around Christmas time, um, Every year at Christmas time, there's going to be all this sensory information that reminds the brain of the trauma, but it doesn't necessarily enter in a conscious way. It's more of a s- unconscious recognition of and remembering of these traumas, and so the child might you might see them really acting out, not following directions at school, and getting into trouble, getting into fights, getting kicked out of class. You know, all this calls it from home. You know, calls to home and all that stuff. And if nobody identifies. Right, that that's what's going on, that the child is actually having a trauma response because, you know, this is the anniversary of when he was removed from home. Um, You know, we're going to punish that child right? We're going to label that child as, you know, bad kid problems, behavior problems, um, emotionally disturbed, you know, all these things. And it's, we're putting all the blame on the child and we're putting all the responsibility on the child to behave better, but we're not doing anything to help the child. We're not doing anything to, um, you know, we're, we're, we're victim blaming essentially, you know, the child's the one who has suffered and now all we're doing is adding to his suffering or her suffering. And so, that's why as teachers, as anyone who works with children, you have to almost assume all children, you know, it, with the rates of 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 things that are going on in the world, you have to assume that any child in your class could have trauma. And so when you see a big behavior, when you see a meltdown, when you see a kid acting out for no reason at all, you want to ask yourself, you know, what's going on here? Not, not what's wrong with this child, but what's going on? What are they reacting to? What, you know, what possibly could be happening at home? What time of year is it? What, what possible anniversary of something or a smell in the room that could be activating a memory? I mean, it could be so many things. Um, it's, it's It almost feels like the beast is so big that it
1: like may never be, like the world may never be healed. Mm. It feels very big, like feels very big. I'm an emotional, you know, human and it, it sometimes it sounds overwhelming when you're like ah, every so many people are hurting and things like that is such a big problem. But again, as I entered into the conversation of the adoption constellation and started to meet more organizations and more people like yourself that are just a little what is it a little pebble in the ocean starts the ripple. I mean, it's like if one person feels better because they heard this or they met you or they read something, you know, then that's that matters. Um, I'm of course sitting here going, okay, any educators listening, www.backplacing.com because (laughs) I wish my district had you right. Or had, but you, like you say, you don't know what you don't know and everybody's intentions can be great in the world, but parents, educators, clergymen, I mean, religious, like all these different opportunities to help like one child that crosses their paths. And they just, we, we have to stop missing them um, mm-hmm. as much as we have in the past. So, you know, the awareness piece is obviously the biggest, biggest piece, because if you're a teacher, the best award-winning teacher or or school district superintendent or whoever you are, you could be the a, a amazing accolade award-winning person. But if you don't know that, pe- my therapist that helped me situationally with the incarceration situation, right, um, we never talked about some things that now I wonder why we didn't talk about back then. Um, We really, so, and and she's great and wonderful, perhaps just not necessarily trauma-informed to have conversations specific around what were my kids experiencing and how is it going to impact them um, from a trauma perspective and help me parent them at the time would have been very helpful. So I feel like the message is is very much for the parents and all the people that touch the kids. Then it's also for me, again, like kind of bringing it home to the adult adoptee in the room that's listening. You know, we have situations that have happened to us that we may or may not be aware of. Whether the story, you know, my story being adopted at 10 weeks old is, to me, um, you know, I wasn't adopted at 10 years old, being sifted around from house to house, good, bad, you know, in everything in between. So I think, especially, you know, this is why I wanted to focus on resources like yourself that can help us understand and introduce you to people that could be listening. Um, because it could be the difference between somebody feeling like totally alone, and there's nothing that they can do about it anymore and getting a little desperate and taking horrible measures. I think sometimes hearing this message is as so that is my total purpose here. Um, I know I told you originally, I'm like, who do I? I originally said, Bethany, you have no business like starting this podcast. And it took one person to say to me, hey, somebody might need to hear it. Um, so even though I'm a walking research, I feel like I'm this body of research for th- trauma and therapy and all those things. Just And something else that I'll say is when life started lifing and things started happening, what I now know is. It could um, trigger something inside, totally deep embedded inside, again, that I would not have been aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. That that wouldn't be my fault, the way that I react to something necessarily. But now that I know, I know, and I can acknowledge it and do better. and it, and for me, it trickles down. It trickles down to the kind of parent I am. Then my kids get to see a better me. And it trickles to my workplaces and spaces and my personal spaces that I'm in and professional spaces that I'm in. So that was my purpose. Um, you know, I want to heal for myself so that I can also heal and help people that are around me. Oh
2: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So thank you for everything that you do. I have one more th- thought that popped in my head. I know we're like, this is the longest, sorry, I'm keeping you so long. I love it. <laughs> so we'll wrap here soon. But um I was thinking about also something that happened this summer. Um, when you talk about like um, emotions and things like that as adults, right? Now we're kind of focusing on like the adult adoptee or the adult person experiencing something traumatic or healing from something traumatic. Um, this summer, I, I had told you before. That, well, of course you know this. I went to a retreat. At the retreat, something that that leader said, who's an amazing human, um, one of the sort of community rules that she set at the beginning of the week was if one of the women next to you starts to cry or starts to feel some type of way, our instinct is to hug them, right? So the kids, right? So obviously we should be hugging and nurturing our kids. And if you see your friend crying or your daughter crying or something like that, our instinct is to hug and cuddle these people. Let's assume I'm talking about an adult here. And her suggestion was that we do this to make ourselves feel better because I don't want you to hurt. So when I see you cry, if I go to move to hug you, it's because I'm uncomfortable watching you cry. Mm -hmm. So our community rule that she set for us was, you know, let let cry so she can understand let those tears flow. So that point of like wound up stress ball of nervous energy inside gets to escape. And then i I also have the opportunity then, if somebody lets that happen, when they just sort of hold space and say, "You're okay, like let it go, let it out rather than touching me and trying to make me stop, that gives me an opportunity to identify where it's coming from. So mm-hmm. that's something that I'm really working hard on for myself is when I start to cry or get upset or feel some type of way, why am I feeling this way?" Um, so again, anybody, I think, and I, I say all that because if that's helpful for anybody that like hears this, Uh, I do think we should be there for our kids, but I have a child who I, my youngest, if I would hug him, kiss him and make everything better because mommy's like doctor, I used to call myself doctor De boo boo. (laughs) Well, he might not want, he didn't want me to kiss him. He literally pushed me away. And I used to say, what is happening? And I couldn't like reconcile why he doesn't want me to just stop it. And, you know, (laughs) anyway, I'm kind of all over the place, but it was this summer um, when I was at this beautiful retreat where this, facilitator host said, you know, sometimes the hugging, the in, instinct to hug and stop the emotion is hurtful to somebody's healing.
2: Yeah. Because it means, so. it means, yeah, it means stop. And I, I totally relate to that. Um, because as a th- therapist being trained to be able to sit with people's pain, um, one of the things that, one of my favorite professors taught me was to never hand the tissue box to the client. And your first reaction was like, well, that's rude. Like why wouldn't, if someone's crying, you hand them a, t- a mm-hmm. tissue. Well that's interpreted as please stop crying. That can yeah. be interpreted as please stop crying. So it's better just to stay present and, you know, lean in or, you know, do these other gestures that show that you're listening and that you're there than to hand a tissue because a, Handing tissue will stop the release and we don't want that and be, um, it can be interpreted as stop that. <laughs> you know, I, 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 keep getting all these nuggets, like
1: in, yeah. I'm, I'm very open to, you know, hearing and understanding and learning all these things. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's, again, I keep kind of going back to it, like step one for if, if you're hurting, hopefully you can Try to understand why you're hurting, or or get some help, professional help, so they can help you through why you're hurting. Um, I'm going to wrap because this will go on forever. So <laughs> I am going to wrap, and I am going to say, well, actually, before I wrap, I wanted to just you talked about your buddy Sullivan,
2: yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> So a grand family for Sullivan. I just want to say, for of course, as a resource to kinship families and grandparents raising kids and. Um, do you want to talk about your book for a minute?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I love sharing about it. It's, I always say it's like a piece of my heart out in the world. Um, it was a book I wrote because I needed one myself when I was a therapist working with uh, grandparents raising their grandchildren, and it just didn't exist. So I um, had to create it. I'm one of those people, I guess. <laughs> it's like once I see, I another, if I have a solution, I need people to have it. Um, and so I wrote this book to help Grandparents and grandchildren find the language to talk about the truth and these really hard things, and so I give language in the book for the grandparents to tell the truth to the child, and just very simple, age-appropriate language, um, and also to show the children being raised in grand families or um, kinship families that they're not alone, because a lot of these families feel very different and isolated from the traditional family dynamic, and they're not alone. There's probably there's pro- there's estimates of up to eight million families in the United States um, that are headed up by grandparents, and um, and that's a lot of kids. You probably have at least one in every classroom. So that makes sense.
1: That makes sense because the incarcerated children. I think the last research that I looked up, children that have incarcerated parents. They used to say back in the day it was like 2.7 million children have parents in prison. I recently looked it up again to see, you know, prayerfully if that number went down at all, and they updated the number to say five million children have been impacted by parental incarceration. So, you know, like in the case of my children, they have been impacted. They are, I have, I raised two of those five. Ooh, thank God we're wrapping because this will make me like cry again. But yeah, I have two of the five million that were impacted by parental incarceration. So yes, those grandparents and family members that step up to take care of these children is so important or else they wind up in the foster, you know, how many kids are in the foster system that are not connected. We didn't even get to talk about the other work that you do, right? Okay. So there'll be a part, I declare a part two, (laughs) claim a part two to this conversation, but that's a whole nother piece, obviously to the puzzle is not ripping these kids out of these homes that they shouldn't be in, in some cases for safety purposes. And in other purposes, they're mistakenly taken out. I believe based on people I've met and talked to either way, they're ripped out of their family tree totally. Um, yeah, so 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 to understand that there's eight million families that have this situation that your book directly deals with is sad and
2: true. Yeah, we have a missing generation of parents um, because of the opioid the opioid crisis and incarceration, mental health problems, you know, death, the pandemic. I mean, the number of parents that were lost um, to the pandemic. So it's, it's, we're in a rough, we're in a rough place. We need to really be gentle with ourselves. (laughs) I know I, I laugh as I say that, but man, we are, we're going through some things as a culture. And, um, I think we need to give ourselves more compassion and grace. And, um, just if anything I leave you with today is that you're not alone in these struggles and, um, we all go through them and find your people who understand and can connect with you because it's our relationships that heal. That's yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you.
1: Thank you. We're ending on that note because that's beautiful. <laughs> um so I'll put it in the promotion for the podcast, but people can find you at BethTyson.com, at on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Um, you can hire Beth to train your teachers and your staff so we can amplify, you know, the things that you teach us. Um, I encourage everybody to sign up for your newsletter. And can you end? So I love you and thank you for bringing hope to this, you know, population that totally needs to hear what you have to say. Thank you for validating my experiences. Thank you for answering my creepy DM. Um, (laughs) Thank you for now being my friend, like all the things. But uh, I'm going to let you. I
2: needed you. I needed you. You came right at the right time. You've been such a... Mm such a bright light in my life. And I'm so grateful that you sent me that message. Well, so. I just feel like a little girl sometimes, you know, somebody told me that, you know, I, uh, I'm
1: old, I'm old now. Right. But I feel like sometimes a little girl, that's just, I'm almost imagining little me sort of recharting the course of her confidence in her life and how she shows up and who she is now. Right. As like yeah. an older woman, but I feel like this little thing that's like oh let me just of course correct some of the inner emotions and things that I've had to deal with so thank you it definitely I feel like I'm on you know the healing journey so yep. thank you for helping me through that will you end us with your quote that you quote on your website about the kiddos
2: yeah yeah that's a great um that's a, my favorite quote and um it goes like this uh let's see if I can say it perfectly the first time a child who can show you their rage doesn't think that you are an easy target. They think that you are someone who won't abandon them. And that relates you know, to children with trauma and who have had such extreme loss uh, that sometimes they can show us the worst sides of themselves and we can take that really personally and we can take that to mean that they don't want to be with us, don't need us, don't love us. But children will often show the worst of themselves and the valid rage that they have to the people that feel the safest to them. So thank you. You're welcome. So I'll
1: see you soon for part two. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for being here, Beth Tyson.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure as always.
0: I am incredibly grateful that I found Beth and her amazing work her compassion, her bedside manner, her ability to explain complex concepts, and her vision for providing education and hope to an entire population who needs her the most is so inspiring. If you made it to this part of the podcast and you or someone you love needs support, your organization is searching for training partners, you're looking for speakers, or you're simply on the edge and you need some help, please drop the Adoptee Diaries a note in the comments. Find us on Instagram at the Adoptee Diaries, or me personally, Bethany Frazier, on LinkedIn. I try to answer all of my messages personally. Next week, for anybody that is attending the Kemp Virtual Conference, a call to action to change child welfare, you can join Beth and me Monday, October 2nd at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time for a live conversation on the intersection of childhood trauma and adoption, where we'll discuss all of this and more. We'll talk about tools, identifying trauma, how to handle it, and the best part, we offer a message of hope and healing. Please visit www.kempconference.org. that's K-E-M-P-E, conference.org, for more information on group packages and how to register. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Adoptee Diaries. I hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. You can find more about Beth Tyson and her childhood trauma-informed training and workshops, order a copy of her book, A Grand Family for Sullivan, subscribe to her newsletter, or access a library of free resources by visiting www.bethtyson.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Adoptee Diaries podcast on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or wherever you stream your favorite shows. It will help us tremendously to amplify and get the word out. You can stay up to date on our latest episodes and also follow us on social media to join the conversation. Thank you so much again for listening. See you next time.